0: Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Shall we pray? Father, we thank thee tonight for thy holy book. We thank thee tonight for these words of wisdom that fall from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're thankful that in him all wisdom dwells. And uh, Lord, we just pray tonight that you'd bless us, that you'd help us. Uh, Lord, by the aid of thy Holy Spirit, to think about the things that are shared, uh, to consider them in the light of these uh, comments that were made by our Savior. And Father, I just ask tonight that this lesson uh, would help us in understanding the subject overall. And uh, Lord, help us in understanding something of where uh, folks are coming from. So, Father, we just pray tonight that you'd use this lesson for your glory and for the glory of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, if we can have our overhead up, please. Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus was exposing the poor theology and the hypocritical practices of the Pharisaism of his day. And in the course of his Sermon on the Mount, he makes this analogy, which we've just read, uh, concerning a tree. And he says, verse 18, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now this evening, as we think about this topic, the upside-down gospel of Calvinism, I want to think about the family tree of Calvinism. Uh, we saw last week that this tree came out of the soil of Greek philosophy, uh, of Stoicism and Neoplatonism and Gnosticism and Mechanism, uh, and was embraced by the theologian Augustine. Now, it's vital, uh, and this is really preparatory to where we're going uh, with these studies, it's vital that we understand something about this man, Augustine. For no figure looms larger In the development of Calvinism, than he. Calvin's teachings are the fruit, but Augustine's views are the root. And so, (coughs) just as Augustine dragged into his theology much of the philosophy that he had uh, grown up with and that he had learned, uh, so too the reformers dragged with them Augustine. And I remember that John Calvin said this. He said that Augustine is so holy uh, within me that I could write my entire theology out of his writings. Augustine is so holy within me that I could write my entire theology out of his writings. So just who was Augustine and what exactly did he believe. That's what we want to think about tonight. Now I will not be in a lot of Bible tonight. I'm going to ask your pardon for that because this is a Bible study. Uh, But there is a necessary uh, evil here and that is to lay some groundwork and do some preparatory uh, introduction to Augustine in order to lead us into an understanding of Calvin and Calvinism when we get into the subject doctrinally and look at the scriptures specifically. So we want to begin tonight by thinking about this man, Augustine of Hippo. And uh, Augustine uh, was born in uh, the northeast corner of uh, modern Algeria in 354 AD. He was the son of a pagan father and a domineering uh, Christian mother. He was from an upper-class family, and his mother tongue was Latin. Uh, At the age of 11... He was sent to school some 30 miles away from his home, and uh, there he was taught Latin and Greek uh, philosophy. In his early education, he described himself as rather lazy and an underachiever. However, what he lacked in motive in no way reflected his ability, for he certainly had a brilliant mind. And at the age of 17, he went to Roman Carthage in Tunisia, uh, in modern Tunisia, uh, to continue his studies, and uh, he chose the subject of rhetoric. He studied rhetoric. Now, rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Uh, It is a means whereby one uses one's skills in speech and oratory to convince your audience of something or other. And, of course, later in life, Augustine would use the skills that he learned in his secular education to convince men of his philosophical and theological positions. So it's whilst he was studying at Carthage that he became interested uh, in philosophy, and he became a member of the Manichaean uh, sect. And uh, that's a branch of Gnosticism. We talked about all this last week. And, of course, Gnosticism is one of the philosophies that Paul specifically addresses in his epistles. Now, of course, Augustine didn't profess Christianity at this point. Uh, He had a long time before rejected his mother's uh, faith, and in his youth, Augustine was extremely uh, promiscuous. And during that time, uh, he entered into a relationship with a teenager, uh, and it became a 15-year-long relationship, and she bore him a son. Now, having this sharp mind that he had, Augustine went on to become a master of Latin. And he began teaching Latin. He started a school at Thagaste in North Africa, not far from his birthplace. And he taught grammar there for a, a year or two before and before long. He was back at Carthage uh, where he opened his own school of rhetoric. And now, this he did for the next nine years. He uh, had this school, this college that he uh, relayed and and conveyed rhetoric to students, and he did that for nine years before moving to Rome. And uh, he started a second school in Rome. Now, Rome was a magnet for rhetoricians, Uh, yet when he arrived there, he found the city was not the uh, welcoming place he expected, he kind of thought they'd roll out the red carpet for him, being such a... A brilliant man being such an established teacher in rhetoric. But he got there and the city was rather, well, like many large cities, indifferent to his plans. A little bit careless about his aspirations. So disheartened, he was then introduced by some of his uh, philosophical friends, the Manichaeans, uh, to the prefect of Rome uh, who had been seconded to the uh, imperial court of Milan. And they were looking for a professor in rhetoric. And uh, needless to say, Augustine fitted the bill. And so he made his way to Milan. Now, he's 30 years of age at this point, And he holds this rather prestigious position within the Roman Empire. Now, by this stage, he's beginning to question his commitment to Manichaeism. And it happened that he was exposed at this point to the preaching and the teaching of Ambrose. Ambrose was the bishop of Milan. He was himself a rhetorician. And uh, he was very learned. He was very eloquent. He was particularly convincing in the way in which he challenged uh, the uh, thoughts of mechanism and objected to them and used the Old Testament in particular to argue against it. So whilst... Uh, there, uh, Augustine fell under the influence of this man. He was impressed by his preaching and by his rhetoric, and uh, he ultimately uh, follows his arguments through until the point where eventually he ends up uh, converting to Christianity. Now, whilst he's in Milan, uh, his mother, and remember his mother's quite dumb hearing, his mother followed him uh, there, and she persuaded him to send away this young lover that he had for 15 years. And uh, to marry uh, into a high society and uh, to marry a particular Melanese girl. And uh, so this he did. He sent his lover away. But the girl that he was due to marry wasn't of age to be married. She was only 11 at this point in time. And you couldn't be legally married uh, in that culture and in that time until you were 13 years of age. So he had to wait for two more years before he could marry this young woman. And uh, during that time, he committed himself to celibacy. Uh, But he was, as we said, a very promiscuous young man, and his promiscuous ways got the better of him, and he ended up taking a concubine throughout this period. And this is when he infamously prayed, Grant me chastity and continence, self-control, but not yet. That's a very infamous prayer of the young Augustine. Later on, while he's in the throes of a... Uh, internal philosophical struggle, Augustine threw himself in tears down upon his garden. And uh, then from the neighboring garden, he heard the voice of a child repeating over and over again the words, take and read, take and read, take and read. And he took that to be some kind of uh, harbinger, some kind of heavenly prompt And so he picked up a copy of uh, Paul's epistles to the Romans and he read Romans chapter 13 verses 13 to 14. And uh, this is the point in which he uh, claims conversion. The scripture says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts. Thereof. And he said at that moment, all the darkness of doubt vanished away. Now, this is the moment that he moves from uh, Manichaeism into Christianity. And his, uh, his uh, attention at this moment, he notifies his mother that he's, he's found a, a new faith, that he's going to serve uh, the Lord. And so he leaves Milan yet again, and he moves back to North Africa. And it says, desire them, when he gets on out North Africa, to have this community of philosophers and rhetoricians who would serve the church, not as clergy, not as priests, not as bishops or anything like that, but merely as writers and thinkers. And there are people like that today. You know, there are are professors in theological universities who have great influence over the churches in terms of their ideas and their understanding of Scripture, but they themselves are never uh, serving in the church in terms of being officers. They're never pastors or any other uh, particular role. They just are theology teachers. Well, that was Augustine's desire. He just wanted to go back to North Africa, establish this community, uh, pull together some of his philosopher friends, and start to think about how they might advance the cross of Christianity by means of rhetoric. But he was press-ganged into becoming a priest. Now, understand the scripture says nothing about priests. Uh, so, what you see already is the church has uh, begun to wander away from orthodoxy and it 's beginning to take on a form that is not recognizable with New Testament truth. but nevertheless, he takes on this point uh, this uh, position of being a priest. And he did so reluctantly. He begged uh, that time would be given to him. Now, I want you to listen to this. He begged for time to be given to him that he might improve his biblical knowledge. So he knew philosophy. He knew rhetoric. But he didn't really know the Bible when he came became a priest. But in the end, believing he could use his rhetorical skills to advance the cause of the church, he accepted And by 395 A.D., he was made Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And, and, uh, you know, you think it's quite a remarkable uh, promotion, uh, given that he was a priest just four short years, and suddenly he is uh, over all the priests in that particular neighborhood. Now, let's back up a little bit in our timeline. In 380 A.D., the Roman Emperor Theodosius, we mentioned him on Sunday... Uh, declared Nicene Nicene Christianity to be the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, he called for the punishment of dissenters. Now, if you were here on Sunday evening, you'll remember, and you know the Lord had this thing set out, I think, because I certainly didn't plan it that way. But on Sunday evening, I explained the parable of the mustard seed and how the herb became a tree. The church developed into something uh, the kingdom developed into something that was never uh, intended, and uh, one of the uh, things I mentioned was this uh, Emperor Theodosius, and as I say, he called for the punishment of anyone who dissented to the Catholic Church, the Holy. Now, not the Roman Catholic Church at this point; it's just the Catholic Church uh, at this point in history. Uh, and he said anybody who was dissenting to the Catholic Church uh, should be punished. Now. Uh, this is kind of interesting because among the dissenters were a group of people known as the Donatists, and Donatists, if you, go, if you uh, were to read uh, a, a fellow named Crump, uh, you read his history of the Baptist Church, you would find that he ties in the history of the Baptist Churches with the Donatists, and the Donatists took exception to the Catholic Church uh, largely because There had been a period of persecution. During that period of time, some people had recanted their faith and denied the Lord. Then after the persecution subsided, those people went back into the church, and some of them were made priests. And the Donatists resented this, and they separated from the Catholic Church, and they decided to form their own assemblies and their own uh, churches and to effectively protest uh, this early form of of Catholicism so that put them in the firing line for persecution and as I said on Sunday what happened at this juncture is that a lot of people who were pagans realized that they were going to be persecuted now that Christianity was the state religion and so a lot of them rushed to be baptized without regeneration and a whole group a large a large body of unsaved unregenerate men and women entered into the church now that's what happened But uh, here's the thing that's interesting. Augustine, as the bishop of Hippo, uh, actually uh, persecuted the Donatists and used military violence uh, against them in order to suppress their conscience and their freedom of religion. And that was something that was later replicated uh, in Geneva by John Calvin. Now, outside of the Lord Jesus and Paul, many consider Augustine uh, to be uh, the greatest of uh, of, of Christian uh, influence, uh, writers. Uh, they consider him to be the most influential person in all of church history. He dies at the age of 430 AD, aged 75. Now, that's his background. That's where he came from. That's what he experienced. That's the story. That's how it is. We can't we can't say that or go back and question any of that. That's all there in history to be uncovered. Now, I want to think about his, his beliefs. And this is quite interesting. Now, time prohibits us from really discussing every one of Augustine's beliefs in detail. But let me summarize some of them for you. And then we're going to briefly look at those beliefs particular to our topic. Uh, first of all, you should understand he believed... In baptismal regeneration. Uh, so much so that when he was asked about the salvation of the thief on the cross. Now this is quite interesting. Listen to what he said. You know, and we use the same argument. We don't believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't believe that baptismal waters save. That they have any uh, merit whatsoever. That it's simply symbolic. Well, when uh, Augustine bought into baptismal regeneration. And believed that baptismal baptism had a saving role or a saving aspect To it, he was asked about the thief on the cross. And we make the same point. We'll say, Well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. Do you know what his answer was to that? His answer was that when the thief was on the cross, or when the Lord Jesus was on the cross, the Roman soldiers plunged the spear into the side of the Lord Jesus. And if you remember what the scripture says, there came forth water and blood. And he says, The water sprinkled the thief. And that was how the thief was saved on the cross. I think if I preached that on any given Sunday, there would be a few raised eyebrows. <laughs> and rightly so. Uh, he also was a sacramentalist. Uh, you understand that in modern Catholicism, you have seven sacraments. In ancient Catholicism, you had three sacraments. And well, one of those, of course, uh, included the sacrament of baptism. Uh, He uh, believed in celibacy. Uh, That is, he initiated celibacy insofar as he ultimately did not marry that young uh, Milanese lover. He decided that when he was going into the priesthood that he should dedicate himself entirely to God and uh, not be uh, strung 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 up with a a wife. And so he just left her behind and uh, effectively introduced the idea of celibacy into the church. Uh, he denied uh, literal six-day creation. In fact, he said, time that the Bible seemed to conflict with science or human reasoning, it should be understood metaphorically. In other words, he said, you know, if the Bible seems like it's wrong and science seems like it's right, we should trust science over the Bible. If he were alive, were alive today, he would be a theistic evolutionist. Um, He was, uh, at one point, like all the early church fathers were, he was a premillennialist. But he became an amillennialist, not because that few was there to be considered, but because he invented it. He invented amillennialism as a theological position. He spiritualized the kingdom. Now, why did they do this? What was the logic? What was the reasoning? You know, for years and years, for the best part of 400 years, people were expecting Christ to come and establish his kingdom. And then all of a sudden, this thing was spiritualized, and the kingdom was realized in the church. And so the question is asked, well, why did did Augustine do this? What was his motive? Well, think about it. What was the one thing that the Roman Empire took exception to? They took exception to anybody who would suggest that they were a king or were going to establish a kingdom. In fact, that was one of the issues that they had with Jesus. That was one of the things that the Pharisees brought up with Pilate, that uh, that he was a king and that he was trying to overthrow Rome. And so Augustine then took the concept of the kingdom and he spiritualized it and he says, no, 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 this is not a literal kingdom on earth. It's a spiritual kingdom within, and it is no threat to the Roman Empire. And he began to develop millennialism, teaching that there would be no millennial kingdom. He also believed that Satan is already bound. Now, if you know your Bible, Revelation chapter twenty we find that Satan is bound for a thousand years and he is dropped into the bottomless pit. We would understand that as a future event. Augustine, again, in order to uh, accommodate his amillennial views, uh, taught, as all millennials do, that Satan is already bound. Now, then that raises the question today, and it's asked all the time of amillennialists, Is Satan is already bound, why, why is there so much sin in the world? Why, you know, aren't people tempted by Satan? Uh, if he's already bound and in the bottomless pit, and they'd say, well, he's bound, but he's on a long chain, <laughs> like a dog, and he's able to get at folks. Well, of course, you know, the Bible doesn't say he's on a long chain. It says he's chained, not just chained up, but he's chained and dropped into a bottomless pit for a thousand years. I would say that would fairly well incapacitate him. Uh, but Augustine said not that he was uh, chained up like that, but that he was already bound in the hearts of those who rejected Christ and rejected the church. Uh, so uh, he put uh, Satan as bound in the hearts of Christ rejecting men. Uh, he also placed tradition upon, uh, uh, as equal with scripture, even as Rome does. Uh, he believed in apostolic succession. Uh, you know, that that, uh, the head of the church was succeeding on from Peter uh, onward, and therefore he paved the way for Peter to be crowned uh, and considered as the first pope. He believed the Catholic Church was the one true church, that if you weren't a member of that church, you couldn't go to heaven. End of. You were outside of grace and beyond redemption. He said the Catholic Church alone is the body of Christ. Outside this body, the Holy Spirit gives life to no one. He is not a partaker of divine love who is the enemy of unity. Therefore, they have not the Holy Ghost who are outside the church. He believed not only was man born with a sin nature, having a propensity for sin, which we would accept, but he believed that children were born damned, so that if a child was born and was not elect, that child would go straight uh, to hell. As a consequence of this rather uh, unpalatable doctrine, he developed the doctrine of limbo. Uh, and we'll come back to infant baptism in a moment. But in the doctrine of limbo, those children who are unbaptized uh, would go not to heaven uh, but to the, uh, to the edges of hell. They wouldn't be thrown into hell. They'd kind of be on the suburbs of hell as if somehow that's better. Now with respect to infant baptism. He, f- he felt that since baptism had a cleansing, uh, a cleansing effect upon sin. That it would be best if people were baptized earlier rather than later. And so he promoted infant baptism. Uh, he also uh, believed in purgatory. Uh, that those who died in communion uh, with the church. Notice how up their screen here. Oh there we go. That those who died in communion with the church uh, went to purgatory in preparation to going to heaven. He believed also alongside St. Jerome that Mary was a perpetual virgin and he put the tagline full of grace onto her name. He believed as Islam does that anybody who was a martyr went straight to heaven and he accepted Uh, The Apocrypha, excuse me a moment, this here doesn't seem to be working just right. He accepted the Apocrypha as scriptures, those extra-biblical books that you'll find in the heart of any uh, Jerusalem Bible or Catholic uh, Bible. Those books were added post-Reformation as a response to Protestantism and Protestantism's emphasis on the Scriptures. The Catholic Church wanted to prove it was the mother of the Bible and at that point introduced these extra books as Scripture. Now, you look at those doctrines, you look at those teachings, and you probably recognize many of them. You've probably come across many of them in your journey. Uh, you know, those, many of those doctrines, not necessarily all of them, but many of them, the majority of them certainly, uh, are, are the doctrines to which uh, the Catholic Church of Augustine, uh, the, the Catholic Church he belonged to, uh, professed. Uh, and with time, what happened, the Roman Catholic Church develops out of the Catholic Church, the Holy Catholic Church, and they retain a lot of these doctrines. So these things are still taught Within, not all of them, but most of them still taught within Catholicism to this day. Now, here's the thing. Augustine, and you cannot get around this, is the father of Roman Catholicism. He's the father of Roman Catholicism. And as I said, many of the things he taught are still taught by that church. And that is why he is deemed within Catholicism as being one of the four doctors of the church. One of the others is Jerome, who uh, along with uh, Augustine put this title upon Mary. Now, this is interesting because the eminent Calvinist Lorraine Botner said of him, it cannot be denied by anyone acquainted with church history that Augustine contributed now listen to what he said more to the promotion of sound doctrine." and the revival of true religion than did any other man between Paul and Luther. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Listen to what he said again. It cannot be denied by anyone acquainted with church history that Augustine contributed more to the promotion of sound doctrine and the revival of true religion than did any other man between Paul and Luther. Now, let's ask ourselves a simple question. If Augustine was alive today, if Augustine was alive and living in Northern Ireland today, would you think that we, as a Baptist church, as a fundamental Christian church, do you think that we would invite him into our pulpit? Shall we have a vote? I mean if I told you that there was a visiting speaker coming to conduct a mission or was coming to do our week of Bible ministry or coming for some other meeting and I said to you you know he has some funny beliefs and I listed these beliefs wouldn't you say to yourself what in the world is the pastor and the elders thinking inviting this fella uh, to come you know There isn't an evangelical church in the land who would go within a mile of somebody who believed those things with respect to having them in their pulpit. And therefore, it amazes me, it absolutely amazes me that so many evangelical Protestants claim Augustine as their patriarch. Now, let's get down to the brass text of our topic. Jesus said in our opening text, essentially, that if you have a rotten root, you end up with rotten fruit. And he said, A good tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Uh, sorry, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, although the tulip acrostic was not developed by Augustine, it wasn't even developed by Calvin, it came after Calvin at the Synod of Dort in 1618. So neither of those men formulated the tulip, uh, but nevertheless, uh, you know, it was Augustine's theology honed by Calvin's, uh, Calvin's structure and systemat- systemization of Augustinian theology that brought about the tulip uh, and brought about this doctrine that we speak of today. So I want to think, just as we close, we're very brief tonight because of the nature of the subject, of uh, some of the fruit that came out of Augustine's root. Augustine produced the rotten fruit of total inability. Uh, The eminent Anglican uh, vicar, uh, clergyman, Dean Farrar, said to him, Augustine is due the exaggerated doctrine of human depravity. Notice what he calls it. And by the way, the Anglican church is Calvinistic. He called it the exaggerated doctrine of human depravity. Depravity. Arthur Custance, uh, again a very eminent Calvinist in his day, uh, said this. Perhaps Augustine was perhaps the first after Paul to realize the total depravity of man. Really? From Paul, 400 years of the church history, to Augustine. Bear some of the people you're passing along the way there, not least of all Timothy, who was uh, the bishop at, uh, at Ephesus, uh, and others. You pass by all these early church fathers, and you only come to Augustine before they understand total deprav- depravity. That's an astonishing statement. He's saying that for the first 400 years of church history, no one understood what Paul wrote better than Augustine. Well, what exactly was it that Augustine discovered? What did he know that men like Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Cyprian and Novatian did not know? Famous names in church history. You know, they all believed in man's sin nature, but none of them proposed, as Augustine did, that man's natural state made him incapable of believing the gospel, thus necessitating a divine infusion of grace in order to awaken his heart, to save his soul, and to overcome his inability to believe. Augustine also produced the rotten fruit of unconditional election. R.C. Sproul, a more contemporary writer, uh, now with the Lord, uh, said this, that uh, virtually nothing in John Calvin's view of predestination was not first in Martin Luther and before Luther in Augustine. Now, here was Augustine's problem. Augustine tripped over Romans 9, 10, and 11, which talks about how God loves Jacob and hates Esau. And he couldn't figure out how God could love one person and hate another person. And so he began to work through this uh, conundrum, which he saw in personal terms, that God was dealing with the person of Jacob and the person of Esau. But actually, when God speaks about Jacob and Esau that way, he's speaking about them in national terms. Uh, those chapters of the Bible have to do with the Jewish people and what becomes of that, what become of them during the church age. Where was God with the Jew? Was God through with the Jewish people? But Augustine did as all Calvinists do in this particular tract of Scripture and applied these words to Jacob and Esau as individuals and then projected them onto all men. He also produced the rotten fruit of limited atonement. Uh, Part of Augustine's story, and I kind of skipped over it, well, I entirely skipped over it in his little uh, biography there. Part of his story was a very famous theological dispute with a uh, British theologian by the name of Pelagius. Now, some people say Pelagius came from Ireland. Some people say he came from Wales. Since he was a heretic, we'll make him Welsh. So, (laughs) Pelagius was a Welshman and uh, he held that everything that God created was good, which is true. Uh, But then he went beyond that and he said that God could therefore never have made fallen creatures and uh, felt that men could do good of themselves and if they so chose, they could somehow contribute to their own salvation. Now, Augustine quite rightly challenged this view But he probably went, well, he undoubtedly went too far in opposing Pelagius. Since Pelagius said that Christ died for all, he taught that, uh, a position that was held by all the early church fathers prior to Augustine, Augustine decided that Christ died only for the elect. Let's listen to Bishop Devenant. Bishop Devenant was an attendee at the Synod of Dort where they developed the tulip acrostic. Uh, a synod in which Calvinism was established uh, as the standard of the Protestant Reformation. And he said this, It may be truly affirmed that before the dispute between Augustine and Pelagius, there was no question concerning the death of Christ, whether it extended to all mankind or be confined only to the elect. Augustine died in AD 429, and up to this time there is not The slightest evidence that any Christian ever dreamed of a propitiation for the elect alone. Now, that is a very important quotation. He's saying that up until Augustine, every Christian writer and preacher accepted that Christ died for all. Only when Augustine comes along does this doctrine be brought into question and is revised to Christ dying only for those he has forechosen. Then Augustine produced the the rotten fruit of irresistible grace. Again, Lorraine Botner in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, states, this cardinal truth of Christianity, irresistible grace, was first clearly seen in Augustine. Now, Augustine did not coined that term again that likely came up at the uh, synod of dort Uh, but nevertheless there's no question he believed in it in principle augustine himself said there is no doubt then that it was arranged for the gospel to be heard by whoever the people who were singled out from that original damnation through the bestowal of divine grace and when they hear it they believe so again the idea is that they're being constrained to believe uh, the gospel And finally, Augustine produced the rotten fruit of perseverance of the saints. Now, let me stop here. When we get to perseverance of the saints, because for many years, people would say to me, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian? Which is a question I lose, okay? It's neither either or, okay? I'm neither Calvinist nor am I Arminian. I don't believe a person can lose their salvation. So that would put me outside of Arminianism. Uh, and, I, and I guess if you haven't, unless you've been sleeping all the way through the last three weeks, I'm not a fan of Calvinism, okay? Uh, so where does that place me? I think it places me in between those two extremes, and I would say I'm a biblicist, okay? Uh, I'm biblical about this thing. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, uh, if, you, if you believe in eternal security, you believe that a, a saved person can never be lost, then many people say will put that to you. They'll say, well, do you think a person who's saved, can be lost again. And if you say, well, no, they immediately go, oh, then you're Calvinist. Well, there's much more to Calvinism than that. And to be fair, for many years, I thought that I held to this doctrine, the doctrine of perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. But when we actually get to this doctrine and study it, I think you'll be appalled by what Calvinism teaches on this topic. I certainly was appalled when I looked into it so allow me again just to extend the last quotation from Augustine where he says this there's no doubt then that it was arranged for the gospel to be heard by whoever the people who, who are who were singled out from that original damnation through the bestowal of divine grace and when they hear it they believe and they persevere up to the end in the faith which works through love now All I can say to you tonight as we close is this. Knowing what you know about the philosophies that influenced Augustine and knowing what you know about the man himself, in particular what he believed, are we really wise to buy into the infamous doctrine of the tulip? Personally, I don't think so. Rather than church history speaking in its favor, I think it speaks a loud, wor- a loud word of warning against it. Remember, no early church father prior to Augustine held this view, and no Christian, I believe, ever came to this position by studying the Bible alone. Augustine did not come to this position by studying the Bible alone, he came to this position through the Greek philosophies we talked about last Wednesday evening, which he married to theology and developed this doctrine. And many of the arguments he will use are Manichaean arguments, arguments he would have learned when he was in that 10-year uh, spell in that sect. He, he applies many of the same scriptures in much the same way. So he didn't learn it just by reading the Bible. Calvin, by his own admission, didn't learn it just by reading the Bible. He said his entire theology could come out of Augustine. In fact, nobody learns it, I don't think, by simply reading the Bible. You know, in the very first week of this series, and of course, these messages go up online. They go on Facebook and in Sermon Audio. In the very first week of this series, a brother left a comment uh, underneath Uh, the first video on Facebook, and he said this, and I hope he doesn't mind me quoting him, I'll not give his name, but it's there for all to see anyway. He said, I am saved 59 years this February. So he's not a, you know, he's not a young pup. He's not a new start. I am saved 59 years this February, and I believed what you are teaching from when I got saved. Until I came under the teaching of Calvinism a few years later. But I could not reconcile it with what I read in the Bible. So I started to study the Scriptures, listen now, without the help of A.W. Pink and others, and began to see the truth that Calvinism is wrong. I think that's a tremendously important comment. And it's just what I'm telling you tonight, that nobody comes just to the Bible and arrives at this position. They come looking at it with a particular perspective. Augustine came looking at the Bible through the lens of philosophy. Calvin came looking at the Bible through the lens of Augustine. And believers today come looking at the Bible through the lens of John Calvin. You know, here's what Jesus said. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. Now you've got to ask yourself, based on what I've shared with you this evening, was Augustine a good tree? Was he a saint man? Was he biblical in his positions? Leaving aside the Calvinistic aspect of things in the other positions. Was he biblical? I would say he's a, he's a heretic. That's what I would say. Jesus said, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree, a rotten tree, brings forth evil or diseased fruit. Rotten root results in rotten fruit. No doubt about it, Augustine had a brilliant mind. No, I have no question, he was very highly educated, very competent in Greek philosophy and rhetoric. But judging by these extra-biblical doctrines he introduced into the church, He was not a good tree. He was a rotten tree. And a rotten tree can only produce diseased fruit. And the fruit of Augustine's thinking is the doctrines of Calvinism. So we're going to leave it there for this evening. And we'll pick up, Lord willing, next Wednesday night.